Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. The book of Revelation we read, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, now standing before the throne and four living beings among the 24 elders. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It says there that they sang a new song and they sang a mighty chorus. And that's what the choir just did, reminding us of the blessed Lamb of God that gave his life for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we do not have to pay the price for our own salvation. I thank you that I don't have to figure out how many good works I can do to earn your favor. It was your son, sinless son, slain, beaten, slaughtered, on a cross, resurrected and ascended, who provided everything I needed for salvation. And so we've sung today of you, and you are Lord. One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May that be the confession of us today, not coerced, not forced, but freely given. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We begin a new series uh, today on raising the next generation for Christ. If you and I are where we're supposed to be with the Lord, and if the lid is off of our life, and if we've had personal revival, then what's next? Uh, how do you keep something like refresh from being just an event? How do you begin to apply what God has taught you, what God has shown you into your own life and into the life of those that you influence and impact? And so this series is really going to be a series on discipleship. How do you learn to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And then how do you invest what you have learned in other people? Because we're not to learn in isolation. This is not a solo experience. And I am so grateful that early on in my ministry that God allowed me to be around people that taught me the principles of discipleship, that he allowed me to be influenced by people. And a lot of what I share with you in this series are principles that I've tried to operate by, understand, and grasp, and am still understanding. Uh, from the early 1970s in youth ministry. I'm glad that when I came in youth ministry, youth ministry was making a shift. It was making a shift from somebody just hired to entertain the kids and keep them busy and off the streets to discipleship, to investing in young people, to teaching them, realizing that many of the people that followed Christ were teenagers because in actuality, the average age at the time of Christ was probably somewhere in mid to late 30s. People did not live long lives, so you didn't wait 
until somebody was an adult, quote-unquote, before you began to talk to them about things that mattered. You taught them early because life was short. And, and so these principles, people invested in me. Uh, Max Barnett, who is the head of uh, uh, BSU at, at OU, really is the, the guy among college ministers over the last 50 years that really understood the principle of discipleship. He introduced me to organizations like the Navigators and like Campus Crusade who taught biblical principles of discipleship. At the same time, I was privileged to be mentored and discipled by some people and still am being mentored and discipled by some people. I still have two men particularly in my life that pour into me and teach me and challenge me and stretch me things in the Word of God that they have discovered that I'm still discovering. I want to always be a learner. I want to always be being stretched to learn and to know more and to dig deeper. I don't ever want to be satisfied with where I am. And, and so those men early in my life and the men now that are in my life and the, the ministries that have impacted me, the one man that I remember the most that impacted me the most significantly was when I was in seminary. He was a layman. He owned a construction business. His name was Frank Favaza. None of you have ever met Frank Favaza, and it is your loss that you never did. Frank was a house builder, and he was a man who took an interest in young preachers. He was a phenomenal man. Raised two kids, and he and Shirley just were one of those couples that just would latch on to seminary students and college students and begin to pour into them. Frank Favaza knew that one thing about seminary students is that we were starving, that we didn't get good meals to eat. And so about once a month, he would invite three or four of us that were going to seminary at that time. He would invite us to go to lunch at the best steakhouse in Kansas City. We would get there about 1130, and we would stay until 230 or 3. We would always be the last ones to leave. He'd say, boys, order anything you want off the menu. I'm buying. And we did, and he did, and we're thankful to God for it. So, you know, a lot of cows gave their life for me uh, when Frank was uh, working with us. But then we'd always get down to getting the meal, and we'd clean off the table, and we'd always get a booth somewhere in the back of the room and Frank would take out his Bible, and he would open it. And he said, now, guys, do you understand this? I, I'm talking about a guy that had no seminary education that taught me more than most of the seminary professors I had. Do you understand this? And, and I remember the first time that Terry and I got to go to Frank and Shirley's house. We were not serving that church at Redbridge Baptist Church, but, but we were being taught by Frank Favaza, who was a member there, and taught in the youth ministry, by the way because he said adults wouldn't listen to him. I said, man, you buy me a steak, I'll listen to you all day long. <laughs> but we went into Frank's library, and it wasn't a very big library, but I noticed he had shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf of Bibles. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I own numerous copies of the Bibles. But then when you started looking in Frank's library, you noticed this. This Bible, these Bibles were arranged alphabetically by subjects in the Bible. 
In other words, if you wanted to understand the Holy Spirit, you went and found his Bible that was marked Holy Spirit. And what Frank would do is he would start in Genesis and read through Revelation, and every time there was a reference to the Holy Spirit, he would mark it. So if he needed to teach somebody about the Holy Spirit, he'd go get his Bible that had all the things that he had marked and learned and been taught by God about the Holy Spirit. If you want to know about the Word of God, every reference to the written Word of God, he had down in there. If you wanted to talk about salvation or sanctification or holiness or whatever it was he did word studies from Genesis to Revelation in the scriptures and these Bibles were marked up subject by subject by subject he was a man who took seriously the study of the Word of God and also took very seriously discipling and teaching other people I never fully expressed to him what impact that made on my life and so I want to help you in mass today, if I could, to learn how you can individualize this concept of discipleship. And not only that, but whether you're a single with somebody that's a peer or a parent with one of your children or a worker with your employees or fellow workers, how do you learn to take what God has put in you and put it in somebody else? How do you invest in others. And so these are going to be some very practical things that if you will do them, you will discover the things that God has put you on this earth to do. When Jesus called his disciples and said, we're going to change the world, he didn't hire an advertising agency. Amen. He called 11 unqualified men who were only qualified because of a call and because of his equipping. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. And while you're turning to Matthew 28, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Salvation without discipleship is cheap grace. This is an exciting and an exacting process. It is more than just giving out information to people to fill in the blanks in a Bible study or an accountability group. This is about teaching people to be lifelong learners of Jesus Christ. This is about reproducing the life of Christ in you and in those that you are investing in, in those that you are teaching. Because you see, a disciple is by nature a follower and a learner. And when you are a follower and a learner, you're also being equipped to be a leader and a teacher. So God is going to show us that whether we know it or not, we are all making disciples. You see, somebody's made you a disciple because you, you say things like this. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, how'd you get that way? It's because of the way you were raised. See, somebody discipled you. They either discipled you with good habits or with bad habits. They either put good truth and principles in you or they taught you half-truths and lies about yourself. You, you and I need to understand that God has something that he wants to reproduce in us. And here's the thing. We reproduce after our own kind. And so whatever we are, we are reproducing that. Spiritually, physically, mentally, in values, in integrity, whatever we are, that's what we're pouring into other people even when we don't realize it. So the first thing is this. The command is not optional. Matthew 28. 
Matthew 28 and verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. They still weren't sure after all the resurrection and everything else. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all, notice the word, all authority, not some authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. There's all. And lo, I am with you always. There you go again. Always, even to the end of the age. Now, some people read that passage. In fact, we've read it so long and we know it so well that we think, well, I've heard that. The question is not, have we heard it? The question is, are we doing it? Because I can sit in a class and listen, but if I don't act on it, I really haven't learned it yet. And and so I want you to look at some things here. First of all, the Greek verb translated go is actually not a command. In the Greek, it's a participle. He's saying, as you are going, as you have been going, just like you've been doing over the last three and a half years while you've been with me on this earth, as you've been going with me, now keep on going. As you started, continue. Just keep on going. In fact, the only command is to make disciples. The command is not to go. The command is to make disciples, to teach the nations what God has taught us. While you're going, make disciples. Now, the word disciple... Well, it was the most popular name for someone who followed someone else at the time of Christ. It's a word we still use today. Aristotle had disciples. Socrates had disciples. Plato had disciples. Artists and artisans had disciples. Learners, people who were learning a craft or a trade. Carpenters had disciples that were learning how to be carpenters. And so Jesus picks up on this common term, And he applies it in that specific area of those who are disciples of a teacher or a rabbi. And he says to them that you are to make disciples. You see, we learn by listening. Now, if you want to know where all this fits, when you walk out into the atrium in just a few moments and you see that huge banner in there that says come and connect and it ends up in guide. Guide is the HOV lane. All right? Wise guide the HOV lane because you can't drive in the HOV lane alone. You have to take somebody with you. And so when we get from coming to connecting and sharing, and when we finally get over in the HOV lane, what that means is that you are a Christ follower, you're a disciple, you're a member of this church, and you're taking people with you on this journey. You're not just making this journey by yourself. And and so these verses are not what Christ would say if he were here. They're what Christ is saying because he is here. As you're going, and this is the great omission of many Christians. We've omitted this. We've ignored it. We've Uh, tried to justify our not obeying it. But I want you to think about this. Jesus is on the Mount of Ascension. 
He is about to leave his disciples. They're not going to see him physically anymore. Now, if you were with somebody and it was the last moments that you would ever see them, wouldn't you pay attention to what they said? This way means yes. This way. I mean, if it's the last word, if it's on a deathbed and they said something to you, I want to say this to you before I leave you and I don't see you again, wouldn't you pay attention to what they said? I would pay very close attention. In fact, I wouldn't have any trouble remembering it. I can remember to this moment the last things my dad said as he was dying in a hospital bed. You remember those things. Now, let me just give you something to write down. Last words are lasting words. When John Wilkes Booth lay dying, he held up his hands and said, Useless! Last words are lasting words. You see, what a person says in the final moments that they're going to spend time with you is important enough for you to pay attention to. And these are the words that Jesus has given us. In fact, Howard Hendricks says, these, this is the briefing before the battle. They're about to go into battle. They're about to be, not be able to look around and say, well, there's Jesus. He'll handle this for us. And so what does he need to say to them to make sure they stay on track. Secondly, the commission is clear. The commission is clear. Now, now there's two things here. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus is focusing on the men, the people that he's speaking to, these 11 disciples. The focus is on the personalities, all different kinds of personalities, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of strengths and weaknesses, he's focusing on the men. But in verses 19 and 20, he's focusing on the method. So he's talking about the men, and then he's telling them what kind of method they need to use. Now let's back up and let's look at it in context. First of all, notice in verse 16 that there is the appointed place the appointed place. They met him in Galilee. Jesus didn't say, you guys figure out where we're supposed to meet. They met him in Galilee, an appointed place, at a desolate place, an isolated place. Now, Galilee was a place where Jesus had done most of his ministry. In fact, 75% of the ministry of Jesus happens around the Sea of Galilee in that general region. Of Israel. And, and so he takes them to a place. Why? There's an appointed place because if you're going to pour into someone, you do it as you go. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says. And Jesus is saying, as you go, make disciples. You do it as you go, but there is a place and a plan and a purpose to your going. It's not random and haphazard. It's not, well, what do you think we ought to talk about today? Uh, what's the beef on your mind today? What, what's the problem? It, it is a designated plan and purpose and place. And, and so they've gone to this place, an appointed place. Verse 17, there's a prevailing mood. There's a prevailing mood. Some worshiped, verse 17 says, and some doubted. Now, some of you came to church today 
to worship. Some of you, because you've listened to your emotions or your feelings or the devil or, or somebody that's spoken into your life, some of you came today and you doubted if church was going to do you any good. Everybody that hears the word of Jesus is going to have one or two responses. Either God can do what he says he can do, and I worship him for that, or I'm not sure God can do that for me, and they doubt it and they miss it. And so there are these people that have gathered. And, and now remember, these guys are stressed out. <laughs> They've just blown it. Crucifixion comes, and only one of them is there, and that's John. Peter has denied him. The rest of them have run for the tall grass. I mean, only the women stayed. Talk about guys needing to man up. I mean, these guys had blown it. You know, well, where were you? I was hiding because I was afraid those Pharisees going to kill me. Where was Mary? She's standing right at the feet of Jesus. Pharisees could have killed her too. So here are these disciples... And they are coming off the greatest failure of their life. And Jesus didn't go around to the 11 and say, Hey, man, how you doing today? How you feeling? Feeling pretty good? How's it going? Some doubted, some worship. If you're going to be a revived person, if you're going to be a disciple maker, if you're going to be a good disciple, then you come worshiping the fact that God has a plan and he wants to put you in the middle of that plan. Then there's a third thing. The unashamed identity with Christ. Christ is calling these disciples to be unashamed in their identity with him. He knew that they were going to face tough times. But what he needed them to understand was their obedience and their being disciples needed to be not partial, but total. You remember in Luke chapter 14 and in Luke chapter 9, in both of those chapters, we see those who say, either let me first or those who, after counting the cost, they followed no more. They walked away. Jesus is saying to these 11, you've got to make up your mind. There's a finality to these words. And what he's helping them to understand is this. I'm giving you the power. You don't have the power in yourselves. You've already proven to yourself you don't have the power. You guys bailed out on me. That's not what I'm here to focus on. I'm not here to focus on the fact that you bailed out on me. I'm here to focus on the fact that I've given you power. I am providing for you what you need. And to these failures, he uses a word in verse 18. All authority has been given to me. That's a word of sovereignty. All authority has been, the word authority means the right to speak or the right to declare or uh, from the perspective of sovereignty, the right for God to act as he pleases. And so it pleased God to send his son to earth for 33 years to invest three years of his life into training these 11. And then it pleased God for Jesus to go away and to send his Holy Spirit and for these disciples to act with all authority on his authority, not their own. You see, when a preacher preaches, when a teacher teaches, when a disciple maker disciples, we're not preaching and teaching and discipling on our authority, but on God's authority. 
and on God's power. It's not in our power. It's on God's power that we do these things. He says, all authority is given to me. Why? Because if you had asked these bozos to accomplish a worldwide ministry, they would have failed. I mean, let's just be honest. Would you have picked the 11 that Jesus picked to start a worldwide ministry? I mean, they wouldn't have made a qualification list for would you want to supersize that? I mean, these guys couldn't get anything right. You know, you got two of them over here. You know, hey, with Jesus, you know, when you get there in that, that kingdom, uh, you know, mama told us to ask you if we could be on your right and left hand. That's the kind of guys you want. Guys are waiting for the empty chair so they can fill it. You got one that denies, you got one that doubts, unless I see you, I'm not going to believe it. You got a zealot, his idea of solving the problems is an AK-47. You got a tax collector, nobody likes anybody from the IRS. I mean, you, you, you got people that we would not have chosen, and God said, that's my team. Those are my guys. These are the people that I'm going to use, and they will not be overwhelmed by the tasks that I'm about to leave them with because they're going to act not in their authority, but in my authority. Notice what Jesus didn't say to them. He didn't say what I would have said to them. You guys are the biggest bunch of jokes I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe that I wasted three years on these. You know, right when I needed you, you let me down. I mean, now, now wouldn't you, I mean, if you, I mean, just don't look at me like you're so spiritual. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you, I mean, if, if you'd had these 11 guys and you had gone to the cross, wouldn't you have said, I'll tell you one thing, if I get a do-over, I'm not choosing you. <laughs> That's not what he said. He looked at him and he said, you're my guys. Guess what? They were no different from the people sitting in this room. Amen. Frail flesh, prone to wonder, prone to make bad decisions, prone to blow it, inclined to regret the things that they do. And Jesus said, guys, it's not about you. It's about my power in you. Now, look at two things that Jesus did. First of all, Jesus had absolute confidence in his authority. Jesus did not say, man, I hope this works. Jesus had absolute confidence in his authority. But not only did Jesus have absolute confidence in his authority, he had absolute confidence in the Holy Spirit within you and within them. You see, Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit inside of you is not going to fail. And Jesus knows that his word is not going to fail. So the Holy Spirit who inspired the word and Jesus who was the living word, Jesus said, I've got so much confidence in the Holy Spirit, the comforter that I'm going to give to you after I leave this place. I have so much confidence in him and I have so much confidence in the authority that the Father has given me. Guys, this is going to work. It's going to work. If you follow the plan, if you stick with it, this is going to work. And so let's look at the commission that is concise. The commission that is concise. We, we have so complicated the simple. 
I mean, we got to remember that Jesus told a lot of stories and he simplified it, and, and we've so complicated it. He, he didn't give a dissertation or a series of lectures. Here's what he did. He gives them the method of making disciples. You ready? Verse 19 is your process. That's your process. If you want to make disciples of your children, of other people, of your peers, that's a process. And verse 20 is the promise that backs up the order of the process. And so, let's look at three participles. And these three participles are going to help you to understand what it means to get somebody into the guide lane. All right? The first one is go. Remember I said earlier, this is not a verb, it's a participle, it's an imperative. It's not an imperative, it's a participle. It can be translated having gone. Now, here's the amazing thing. You know, Essie Cup, who is an atheist, says in her book, Losing Our Religion, that 80% of Americans claim to be Christians. I think that number is way off. But let's say that in America today, there are 100 million people gathered in churches today. Would you agree with me that out of the 100 million that are in America today, we're not doing a very good job of having been going and making disciples? Amen. I mean, can you think that if we, if the church was doing what the Great Commission says, that our country would be in better shape than it is today? Amen. If we were just doing what God told us to go and do. Jesus assumed the going. He, he never gave an out on this. He never said, go unless you don't have the gift of evangelism. Go unless you don't feel comfortable talking to people. He just said, go. This participle is, is it's never occurred to him we wouldn't go, but what we've done is we've bottled it up and God told us to dispense it. We got it in bottles. We need to pour it out. And so he tells us to go. And here's what needs to happen if we're going to raise the next generation for Christ. Some of us need to get into the as-you-go stage. Some of us are not in the as-you-go stage. Oh, we're going. We're going to the store. We're going to the mall. We're going to school. We're going to our jobs. But we're not going as disciples or disciple-makers. Some of us need to get into the going stage. Second word is baptizing. Baptizing being identified with Christ. Now, let me, let me show you what baptism means in the Greek. If you went to Greece today and you walked into a restaurant and you said to a waiter in a restaurant, just find, don't find anybody who goes to church. Just find any waiter in any restaurant and you said, I have a bottle of water and I have a mint. Please illustrate for me what baptism means. This is what he would do. He would drop the men into the bottle of water because the Greek word for baptism means to dip or plunge or immerse. It doesn't mean to sprinkle as a baby. It doesn't mean to sprinkle because that's your preferred method of baptism. The Greek word... The word that Jesus used, the word that is still translated that way today, means to dip or plunge or immerse. Now, would you agree with me that there's a mint 
dipped, plunged, immersed into the bottom of this glass? Why? Because it's the only way that we physically can picture what happens to us in salvation. He didn't say be baptized to be saved. And immersion is not a Baptist doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. It says, I was standing up in my own life, minding my own business, doing what I wanted to do. I was confronted by Christ. When Christ confronted me, I died to my old way of life. And having died to my old way of life, buried in Christ, dead in Christ, I'm now raised up to walk in a new life. Something happened to me. Something old died, something new was born. That's why we call it the new birth. And so some of you today, it's as simple as when we get to the invitation, you need to come down and find one of our ministers and say, I have never been scripturally baptized. I got saved after I was baptized as a child. I got sprinkled, but I need to be immersed. I need to be biblically baptized. Some of you just need to settle the issue. Here's why. Real simple. No guilt trip. Okay? Here's why. How can you expect your children to be learners if you're not obeying the first command of Christians? How can you teach anybody else anything if they started reading their Bible saying, this says I'm supposed to be baptized. Yeah, 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 it does. Have you? Well, no, 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 I haven't done that, but that's beside the point. It's not beside the point. It's a tripping point where you've not been an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you the references. Acts chapter 2, 41, 3,000 were saved and baptized at Pentecost. In about a month, we'll be right there by those mitzvah, by those pools where Peter preached that sermon and they were baptized right there. There was an area designed for people to be cleansed right outside the Temple Mount. And that's where these 3,000 were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8 verse 38, repented and believed and was baptized. Here's water. What hinders you from being baptized? By the way, there's water up there. What hinders you from being baptized? Paul was baptized, Acts 9 and verse 18. Cornelius and his household were saved and baptized in the name of Christ, Acts chapter 10. Some of you need to start going. Some of you need to be baptized. Third participle, teaching. Teaching them to observe all, not part, all that I have commanded you. Not just the parts we like, (laughs) Not just our favorite parts or our favorite books, but all that I have commanded you. A familiarity with the teachings of Christ. And teaching produces change. It's an investing. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, remember what the Jews had been taught in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They were to observe, obey teach the things that they had been taught by Moses. To who? To their family. As they went about their business, as they went to the city gates, as they went about their way of making a life, they were to put this scripture on their heads and and they were to memorize it and they were to teach it so that they could live it. To constantly remind of the need of teaching and being taught. So, 
The mandate is to make disciples. That's a mandate. It's not an option for us. The mandate is to make disciples. The means of making disciples is going and baptizing and teaching. And then in verse 20, I am with you always. By the way, I've heard that taken out of context a lot. You know, Jesus said, I'm with you always. No, Jesus said to those who make disciples and obey the great commission, I am with you always. Why would you sense the presence of God with you if you're not doing the things that God told you to do? You should sense alienation. Just like as a child, if you disobeyed your parents, it should make you sense a little alienation because you're not doing what your parents told you to do. He says there's a promise, but it's linked to them. Now, 2 Timothy 2.1, we don't have time to turn there. Let me just read it to you, and then let me make some application. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, familiar words. The things that you have learned and heard and seen in me. All three of those words could tie back to go baptize and teach. The things that you have learned and heard and seen in me. They had seen that Paul had been baptized. The things that you have learned and heard and seen in me, these impart to faithful men who will teach others also. In one verse, you have the principle of discipleship for four generations. You want to know how to leave a legacy, not only for your children, for your grandchildren, and for your great-grandchildren? Do what the Bible says. Learn and heard and seen in me. These impart to faithful men who will teach others also. So you got Paul, you got Timothy, you got faithful men, and you've got others. Four generations. This is the implementation of the principles of raising the next generation for Christ. By the way, it's often called the principle of multiplication. You see, a church grows and the body of Christ grows and the kingdom of God grows not by addition but by multiplication. It is a process that is to never end. Let me give you some examples. And let's just kind of see how all this works. We have invested and given sacrificially and worked hard to build Legacy Park. Let's say that on a given Monday night or Thursday night or Saturday morning, we have a 1,000 people at Legacy Park, which we do. Let's say that in a year at Legacy Park, we were to see a hundred people saved at Legacy Park. Now, we, we would be real excited about that. I'd be excited about it. You'd be excited about it. All God's children would be excited about that. But we're not going to reach the world from Albany, Georgia, winning a hundred people to Christ at a time in one place in the life of this church when 88% of our three-county area is lost and unchurched. We're going to lose ground. We're not going to gain ground. We're going to lose ground because more and more people will be born and lost while we're reaching 100 a year at Legacy Park. Uh, Let's say that I come with some bold vision that we're going to start 
100 churches in the next 10 years. And we're going to start them all over America. We're going to start them around the world. We're going to start them anywhere we find that we need to start a church. We're going to start 100 churches. And let's just say that those 100 churches baptize, save, see, saved and baptize 100 people a year. 100 churches, 100 people a year. The world will be more lost 10 years from now with us starting 100 churches and having 100 people a year saved than it was when we didn't start 100 churches. So that's obviously not how we're going to fulfill the Great Commission and reach the world from Albany, Georgia. We'll reach some, but we won't reach the world. Let's say that we move up and we start making a movie every six months. So we're nonstop. I mean, we're just churning them out, baby. And let's say that our movies go around the world, and that's what we've said, and they have, and they're in 58 to 75 countries. Nobody seems to know what the number is. I'm going to say it's 120 just for the sake of exaggeration. And, and we've had maybe 14 to 15,000 people that have been saved because of facing the giants and because of fireproof and flywheel. Can I tell you something? That's great. And we'll meet people in heaven because of that, but we won't change the world making more movies, having a bigger sports park, or planting churches. Now, before you think that I'm raining on the parade of all the ministries that we do in this church. Let's say that Michael Catt, by himself, Michael Catt, by himself, let's just say that I preach to 100,000 people a day. I mean, we got on television everywhere you could get on television. We even got, you know, MTV to sell us an hour. And I'm, I'm preaching to 100,000 people a day. And let's say that I'm seeing 4,000 people a day being saved. And not only that, let's say that if I'm preaching to 100,000 people a day and 4,000 people a day are being saved, and suppose I preach 360 days out of the year, you give me Christmas and New Year's off. Well, at the end of one year, just under my preaching alone, there would be 1,426,000 new people in the kingdom. Now, that sounds like a lot of people. In fact, if you really want to be impressive, I would outdo Billy Graham because at the end of 16 years, there'd be 23,360,000 people that would have come into the kingdom and the world would be more lost than it is today. If all of that were possible. Now, Let's look at it another way. That's addition, by the way. And addition always leads to subtraction when you're trying to keep up with population growth. Let's just look at it under the principle of multiplication and under what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. Let's say that I reach one person, and for the next six months, I disciple that person, I teach that person, I pour into that person, 
for six months. And I say, now look, son, I've taken you through boot camp. I've taken through, you through security level two. And you know everything you got to do to survive in this world. Now get out there and you find somebody and you lead them to Christ and you disciple them. And I'm going to go find me somebody else and I'm going to lead them to Christ and I'm going to disciple them. Let's say that we did that. Let's say that, it, that I had somebody and then after six months they got somebody. At the end of the year we'd have four. And you'd say, boy, preacher, you're not making much headway. Let me just cut to the chase. If I kept doing that, and if you kept doing that, then the four become eight, the eight becomes 16, the 16 become 32. And in 16 years, remember in 16 years, just with me, if I did everything I was supposed to do in preaching all those times, we would have, you know, 2 million, 12 million people saved, or 23, whatever it was. But let's just, let's just say that. Okay, now we're into multiplication. At the end of 16 years, there would be 4 billion people saved in the world. And can, can I just tell you something? Just, it's just us, okay? Can I just tell you something? I know we're late. Just don't worry about it. Just listen to me for a minute. Because this is how we reach the next generation for Christ. Can I just tell you? Those of you that work an hourly wage, you see more lost people in a week than I'll see in a year. Amen. You're a doctor. You're a nurse. You're a school teacher, you're a secretary, you're an assistant, you're a physician's assistant, you're a dental hygienist, whoever you are, you, you will see more people that you could invest in than I could ever get my hands on. I just think about it. You want to be a church that reaches the world from Albany, Georgia? You want to be a church that really stands for whoever wants the next generation the most will get them? Then let's start making disciples. Find somebody. Teach them. Train them. Invest in them. Teach them how to grow in their faith. And then you make them go find somebody else. By the way, the communists are better disciple makers than Christians are. Cults are better disciple makers than Christians are. But can I tell you something? <laughs> this is good news. This book right here tells me that we're the ones that are supposed to be the disciples makers. And by the way, just don't tell anybody else, okay? Because it, it'll mean we'll start really doing this. All authority has been given you. And God, when he saved you, had absolute confidence that you wouldn't drop the ball on this. He wouldn't command us to do something that he did not equip us to do. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening. And have a great day.